So we're in Parshat Pinchas this morning in the book of Numbers, chapter 28, verse 1. Let's say a bracha for our study together. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, God, spirit of the universe, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and calls us to engage with words of Torah. So uh, we are going to begin looking at the calendar of sacrifices. So we might be asking, why is this calendar here when we've already had a calendar? Why are we getting a repetition of the calendar? Um, we get this whole um, movement towards looking at when the conquest happens, right? That's where we're at in the book of Numbers, when, you, you know, when you're going to get to the land and here's what's going to happen and um, here's how the land will be um, apportioned. Um, then there's the question about the inheritance rights of women. Um, a question that comes to Moshe, um, the daughters of Tzolofchad, uh, raise a question about their right to inherit if there's no son in their clan. Um, and then we get um, this, I, this whole discussion of, of Joshua succeeding Moshe. So we get the transfer of authority from Moshe to Yoshua. And then it's, okay, so now when you're going to apportion the land and then you're going to get there and now we've got the succession so we know who's going to be in authority, don't forget that here's the way that you're going to make your life sanctified in the land, which is that you're going to keep the observance of um, sacred time once you're in the land. And here are the, here's the calendar of uh, public sacrifices that's going to happen um, as part of the way that you're going to live as an ankadosh, as a people expressive of holiness. So we get this whole um, iteration of the sacrifices. So this is less about just the calendar than it is about what you're supposed to offer right on, on those days. Make sure you, you stay with the, the prescribed public rituals, which then, of course, was sacrifice. So the, the public rituals around these times as a people living on that land. So that's why this is here. Somebody want to begin at 28.1? Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Command the Israelite people and say to them, Be punctilious in presenting to me at stated times the offerings of food to me as offerings by fire of pleasing odor to me. Say to them, These are the offerings by fire that you are to present to Adonai. As a regular burnt offering every day, two yearling lambs without blemish. You shall offer one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And as a meal offering, there shall be a tenth of an aleph of choice flour with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil mixed in, the regular burnt offering instituted at Mount Sinai, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to Adonai. So this is the tamid offering. This is the regular offering. Um, this is to be offered every single day. It is a communal offering. So this is not individual Israelites bringing the tamid. Um, it is the daily offering, much like many peoples in the ancient Near East had. There was kind of this sense of the community um, needs to feed daily the gods, and so there was a daily offering to keep the gods happy and fed and right in favorable disposition to the people. Um, so this happened uh, in Egypt where there were three daily sacrifices and the gods were served morning and evening. 
Um, so sometimes we tend to think this is like, you know, this idea of three offerings a day is somehow new to ancient Israel, but it's not. This is the, the, the practice in the region. Um, and in Mesopotamia, and so Egypt, remember, is south, and then Mesopotamia is north and west, east of ancient Israel. Um, and there, um, it's, it's a closer, actually, um, parallel to the ancient Israelite way of understanding the Tamid and the origins, probably, of the Tamid are uh, in that region. Um, did you have a question, Mickey? No. When I traveled in Hindu countries, I don't know about the homes, but in the stores in the morning, they always have a plate with sacrificial fruits, vegetables, and a little dead bird. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's... From here, I would imagine. Right. So it... Uh, some of these things we, we can guess are related to terrestrial human culture, right? THC, the anthropological term meaning kind of the, across the human spectrum of societies there are impulses that are similar. So certainly offerings to the deity is part of terrestrial human culture. Every human culture has their understanding of that. Um, <clears throat> some have brought that forward into modern times in this way of literal offerings, right? That, that like Mickey's describing, that you actually offer something on an altar to the God. Um, Christianity drew it forward from ancient Israelite tradition in the form of the Eucharist, right? Communion is um, the offering of the sacrifice and the people eat of the sacrifice just as they did in the temple times, right? So that's still happening in the Catholic Church and in other branches of the church. So th this ritual has been pulled forward. Um, Jews, of course, stopped using that as the um, major metaphor of coming close to God with the destruction of the second temple, where prayer takes the place of sacrifice. Um, but it's interesting, for a lot of the really, for me, deep spiritual writers, the metaphor of sacrifice remains really poignant so that we might talk about the fire on the altar of the heart and what is it we offer on the fire of the heart, right? You know, that it's still that, that, that image of sacrifice, even when we're talking about prayer, for a lot of our spiritual masters was really, it remained a profound idiom for them, I think. Um, in particular, Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, right, the Sfat Emet, talks a lot about the, the fire on the heart. Rabbi Shefa Gold, you know, talks a lot about the priest or the priestess within, you know, and, and the daily offering and what, what are we called to bring. Um, so It's an interesting liturgical thing <clears throat> that one of the uh, blessings in the Amidah, the traditional one, which was about the fires of Israel, right, uh, has been changed by both the conservative and the uh, progressive movements removing that particular reference because it was referencing the, uh, the sacrifices. But I read a conservative take on that, which was saying it is actually may the fire of our hearts, may, may, may our hearts be aflame with love for God in the same way it was for our ancestors. So we have abandoned that in its literal thing, mm -hmm. but uh, in the liturgy they took, they took that out. Yeah. Is um, that because it specifically referred to sacrifices and it was 
It may come back one day. <laughs> it you might. Never know. Yeah. Well, and this is the same for um, our our hesitation to keep in parts of the liturgy that reference the building of the third temple, mm -hmm. right? So we take out. So a lot of us like mm -hmm. struggle with you know, Eliyahu Hanavi. Mm -hmm. You know, when we sing it at Havdalah, you know, Kumbaya moments of, you know, Havdalah, a lot of us, like, really struggle with, you know, Im Mashiach ben David, right? So really not wanting to long for this time of when Mashiach will come and the third temple will be built and um, sacrifices will be offered again. And so there's several places in the liturgy where we differ from more traditional expressions because we're, we're, we excise uh, those texts. How can they keep afford to losing all these animals? There must have been so many of them. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. It's a very real question. Uh, scholars disagree about it vehemently. Um, some scholars say um, clearly this was, this is a historical mythic memory that they were in the desert wandering. They were, they were, they were in the land when these sacrifices were designed and when the calendar of offerings evolved. So they were settled, they had plenty of flocks, they had plenty of bulls, they had plenty of rams. You know, they, they weren't schlepping through the desert. Um, and remember, this is looking forward to when they get in the land. It's not saying, you know, that they're doing this now. So it's in the land, what, why, why would they had flocks? Um, it's hard to imagine and herds. from place to place with so many animals. So that's why it's a mythic memory. They, yeah. they didn't, most likely. Um, so it, that's a mythic memory. But this is, this is not saying they did it in the desert. They're saying, when you get to Israel, when the conquest happens and you take the land, here will be your calendar of observances. Okay, so that's an important distinction to remember. This is projecting forward to when they have the land. Even still, some scholars look at these numbers and say it is simply unsustainable to imagine that you know a bull three times a day you know or whatever you know like whatever we start talking about and then a Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur and then the new moon and then you start adding those numbers together and it is just simply just not sustainable when we think now about how much a cow costs you know right. now that we're doing really all this food research right Cows are, right, Reuben, cows are very expensive. So a bull, like, to feed and raise a bull would have been, or even a big ram, this would have been a lot of resources, a lot of food, a lot of water, a lot of schlepping, a lot of tending, a lot of um, grass that would have been needed by each one of them for grazing, or even if you cultivate it in agriculture and feed it, that's a lot. And um, so some scholars say even the calendar of offerings is mythic it was never it was never real it was never instituted there might have been you know a daily offering and, and even at these times and even in these ways but never at these numbers and if you start breaking down the numbers you can start seeing patterns of seven seven times seven seven plus seven like so you start seeing that maybe this is a symbolic representation right the fullness is expressed by seven, but they didn't actually take seven animals and shech them. Pam, you had a question? I was going to say that, of course, the sacrifice, sacrificing came from the ancient world, but do you make a distinction between the fact that we were not sacrificing to appease the gods, or uh, so we'll have a good crop this year, um, it was to draw near, which to me is a huge 
the fact that we can have any access to God at all, God doesn't need our sacrifices, that he'll accept, yeah, we can do something pleasing, a pleasing odor and it's accepted, that that's a, all these are to be very huge distinctions from the rest of the ancient world. Your thoughts? Yes. It's hmm. a big one. Um, distinction, yes. Evolution of the idea, yes. Huge distinction? I don't know. Like I, a, a lot of sacrifice, I imagine, still remain to be about propitiating God. That if you look at the biblical theology, there's a lot in here about keeping God from getting angry and keeping God from decimating the people. Um, if you keep my commandments, there will be rain. There will be crops, there will be food, there will be peace. If you don't, offer me my sacrifices at their appointed times. And other things that are ethics that I think are fantastic and wonderful and evolutions of, of these ideas for sure, um, then it's going to go badly with you. There won't be food and there won't be crops. The heavens will be like copper, right? And it's going to shut up against you and your enemies will devour your children. Like, so, but this is the only... Um commandment that we can do to draw near to God. There, we, well, yeah, I mean, you can make a case that it, all the all the mitzvot is to draw near mm -hmm. to God, but this is a very tangible thing that we can do and bring up that smoke, you know, and transform it. But there's nothing, there doesn't seem to be anything anywhere that gives any indication that any Israelite is the least bit interested in drawing nearer to God. They're all still kind of afraid of. <laughs> well, the commentary, so, excuse me, the commentary here does support the, the uh, bringing near, they talk about the uh, uh, root word from sacrifice, uh, KRB. Right, Karov, Korban. So we've talked about that, 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 that that's how it was understood, that, that it was a way of the people drawing closer to God, drawing God close. 100%, that is how it was understood. But I think part of what Richard is saying is that this is not my individual drawing nearer to the Holy One. Yeah. The, 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 it's the communal, you know, it's the communal offerings that are the cultic regimen and schedule that keeps us in good stead with the divine. I think it develops. You know, I think that I think the idea you're talking about develops in later Israel. I was also well, that but that word still, that is the word and that is the root to to, to draw near. So that's a different concept in itself. Just using that word. Okay. We have a problem. Yeah, no. So you know, I, I would I would like to look at other ancient Near Eastern parent language terminology. That, I mean, let's do that. Okay, okay that's your homework. Um, look up the Akkadian and Sumerian of the word sacrifice, right, to look and, and get at that root concept. But it, it would be an interesting idea to, to explore. I'm not, right, so I'm not sure how much we lay on that term and how much really was it. I don't know that, obviously. Scholars don't know that. But we can compare some of the ways other traditions talk about it to to start exploring. Well, this is a place where English <coughs> is a barrier for us. 
because the word sacrifice, even though it, I assume, comes from sacred or something like that, it's hard to say the English word without thinking of the Christian meaning of giving something up and the sacrifice of Jesus, etc., etc., etc. And so it's, as English speakers, it's a tough, it's yeah. a tough concept. I know. I kind of wish we could find a word. So, I mean, sometimes that's why I stay with offering. Yeah. Um, you know, is that the daily offering, right? So it is the sense of giving something up. You are mm-hmm. giving something up, but it's us giving something mm-hmm. up, not God, mm-hmm. right? In Christian sacrifice, it is God who makes the sacrifice because we can't sacrifice enough to be worthy of salvation. But there's also a sense, <clears throat> excuse me, the word sacrifice is I'm giving up something that I'm, I'm making a sacrifice for my children. <clears throat> we use it in, in those terms. I'm sacrificing something for my children or for my country, which is giving something up and being less for it, and, not more. And I'm, and I'm not sure that that's completely absent, absent in the idea. The idea is you've been given so much mm-hmm. You give some of it back. You sacrifice your ability to use some of that grain so that the Levites can eat. Yes, but, but as, again, as English speakers, the Christian overlay of this is so heavy on that word. So I have a question. So then the difference between the Hebrews and the other ancient cultures is they're, they're not sacrificing people anymore, it's animals, and it's to one God. Because I, I had that same thing, what makes them different in that time? Not what, I mean, it was clear they were kind of doing this so they would still feel like they were like everybody else, sacrificing. So the question is, is it because, are they different because it's just one God that they're doing this? Is that the big major So thing? we're going we're gonna to go exactly there in just a second, where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Um, but to the, fir- to the other point, you made, which was, is it because they were, one? what was the other thing? One God and what else? They're not sacrificing not, not humans. humans. Oh, right. We, we don't have a lot of evidence for human sacrifice in the ancient Near East. Um, the evidence that, and I'm just bringing this up because I learned this in rabbinical school. Um, the interesting thing is the evidence that we have is from the Bible, right? So it's like saying, well, you know, those Christians, you know what they do. You know, those Muslims, you know what they do in their worship? You know, like, so what we have is the reference of a people who's denigrating another people by saying they do this. Like Molech, like, you know, you are not allowed to sacrifice your children by passing them through the fires of Molech. There's very little evidence for child sacrifice in the ancient world. Now, we have the story of Jacob, we have the business about Molech. Did it happen? For sure. Like, it's, we know that it is there in the record, but I just want us to be really clear that it was not normative, right, in the region. So, so yes, it's very clear that our Torah comes to say, you can't do it at all, ever. Like, in case you hear about a people who did and that things went well for them. Like, let's be really clear, never is it okay. Um, and we shouldn't overgeneralize by trusting the characterization of what other people do based on early Israelite texts about them. Um, there was human sacrifice in Mexico up to about 500 years ago. And the Greeks yeah. did too, so I don't know if you're including No question about that. In the ancient Near East. Or so, um, 
Right. So I'm talking mostly about the ancient Near East. Um, but because we tend to think, wow, ours is so much better because at least we're not sacrificing kids all the time. You know, so yes, it's an improvement. Yes, it's ethically wonderful that we evolved to a place where that's not allowed. And we can overgeneralize about what's going on in Mesopotamia you know, from texts that are about those horrible Mesopotamians. <laughs> all right. What point, I don't remember now from backing up, what point was the sacrifices to absolve people for feeling guilty of their They knew they sinned, the animal was killed, and then they shouldn't feel guilty anymore. What, I don't remember, when did that happen? That's part of this system. Mm-hmm. Part of this system is to atone for sin. There's lots of kinds of offerings. You're not aware of the sin. It's just you assume you did it and it's all part of the package. Correct. Correct. So when you become aware, or at regular times, because we assume we've sinned, like Yom Kippur was all about inadvertent sin that you're not even aware of. But if you become aware that you've done something wrong, you need to rectify the wrong and then bring a sacrifice, right, of... Um, Right, a chata, um, a sin offering. Right. <clears throat> where, where were we? Where did we stop? We stopped at seven. We stopped at seven. Okay, someone read seven through ten. The libation with it shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb to be poured in the sacred precinct as an offering of fermented drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, preparing the same grain offering and libation as in the morning gift of pleasing odor to the Lord. On the Sabbath day, two yearling lambs without blemish, together with two tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in as a grain offering and with the proper libation, a burnt offering for every Sabbath in addition to the regular burnt offering and its libation. Okay. So we're getting, so see, Pam, this is one of those places where it's like clearly left from, you know, I mean, how, how a libation offering is all about karov. You, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But, but, but they were saying early in, uh, earlier portions, of, like in, in Numbers, I think it was, that, uh, that everybody, doesn't matter your means, not everybody can afford a bull, but you can bring a meal offering, just about everybody, or a dove, or whatever is in your means. So meal offering. So the sechar. Right? The, uh, the Bring a little the scotch <laughs> to the tish for God and pour it on the... So I'm, there's just a lot, I think, left here of... What made the flour choice as distinct from non-choice flour? So think about when you go shopping for bread. Is there a distinction between Wonder Bread and the bread you buy from the bakery? There's difference in how the grain... There's a difference in the grain. Where it comes from. Wonder bread versus, you know, the fabulous artesian here, bread. Right, just looking at the grain, it, 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 different grains are superior. So there's a, there's a different quality to how it's processed, to, you know, how, how fine it is, to where it's going. Absolutely, they understood very clearly. I mean, I, I don't know all the technical details about what makes it, I could look them up, you know, what makes it a better flower, but, but it's supposed to be your, your best flower. Not so the cheap stuff. The, the flip side would be like today, LA Bakery. Kind yes, of exactly. Artesian bread. But also, people, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is don't just take nothing and give the bad stuff to God and keep the good stuff for yourself. Exactly think, right. To me, that's the point. Oh. Right. More than how you tell the difference, it's that whatever it is, you've got to take what you would like to have the most and sacrifice it. 
Um, <laughs> all right, so, um, so then we come to Shabbat. So after the regular offerings of the week, every day, the Tamid, we get a, an additional offering, and the word for it comes from additional, and it is the Musaf, right? The one that is added on. Um, Mm-hmm. Because now every every sacrifice that is in this calendar now has a prayer service in its place because prayer has replaced sacrifice. So on Shabbat, there was a Musaf offering, so we have the Musaf service, right? The prayers that make up Musaf in some places. <laughs> um, and, some, and so that's why Shabbat worship is longer and bigger, right, than than worship on a regular shachri, a regular morning service, because we add this additional set of prayers that makes up Musaf. Um, so, so Shabbat is the time that is not dependent on the calendar of seasons, right? So Shabbat is the, mo- the daily sacrifice is most regular. So we're getting it from regular to least regular. So the tamid, the daily offering, is the most regular. Now we're going to get Shabbat. Shabbat is not according to the calendar. Um, It is a communal offering that comes every seventh day. So it's a probably, scholars think, um, that it might be an older cycle of offerings than even the seasonal ones that we get described. This is different, going to Dana's point and Pam's point, this is different from the Mesopotamian cycle of offerings, so the neighborhood that early Israel grows out of, which is entirely linked to the lunar calendar. Shabbat is outside the lunar calendar. The Mesopotamian offerings are all tied to the lunar calendar, and most likely the moon was the god to whom they were sacrificing. So this goes to Dana and Pam's point um, that there is a distinction, and it's a very important distinction in that the early Israelites needed to be clear they were not sacrificing to the deity that is the sun or is the moon. Now, they're still sacrificing to a deity. We can talk about what's the difference between those. There is a difference that needed to be made clear in ancient Israel, which is it's not to the moon that we're sacrificing. Well, isn't it to the God who created the earth in seven days? Yes. So that's where I'm I'm with you about. Okay, so wait a minute. So what's the... What's the big distinction? But but it was an important distinction in that they were careful to, um, and in our liturgy we're going to see some remnants of that, be careful to be clear that it is not the moon goddess, because usually the moon was feminine. It's not the moon goddess to whom they are sacrificing. We can have a long discussion sometime after we do our research about whether or not that... So what's the difference in those two? Reading on just a little bit ahead to the next verse or two when it talks about the Rosh Hodesh sacrifices they because they are so much more elaborate than even the Shabbat sacrifice uh, you would think that there's still a remnant of the sort of 
fertility-oriented importance of the moon. So, so we get the Shabbat offering, which is not a remnant of that right. first, right? Because Shabbat really is a socioeconomic, ethical uh, um, observance, right? You shall rest and your slaves and your ox and everything that works shall rest one day out of seven because I freed you from Egypt. That's one of the explanations. The other explanation is because I made the world in six days and rested on the seventh, right? But one of the reasons given for Shabbat is Yitziat Mitzrayim. I took you out of Egypt. You are no longer slaves. Therefore, you will rest. And everything that belongs to you shall rest. So it's a socioeconomic postulate about redemption, right? And a huge Jewish concept brought into the world. Huge. Otherwise, we have a seven-day work week. That's exactly right. Or a nine-day or a 12-day or any. Right. Exactly right. Um, and so then the next calendrical observance is uh, of regularity is Rosh Chodesh, which is absolutely a remnant of Mesopotamian, possibly other, um, traditions about the moon and sacrificing um, at the... At a certain phase of the moon. I always thought the, set, the day of rest was because God rested the seventh day. There's two explanations. One is because God rested on the seventh day. The other, in another place in Torah, it doesn't say that. It says, you shall observe Shabbat, for I took you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. That's used a lot, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. So those are both present. They are both equally understood as reasons for Shabbat. They are probably different traditions originally, but but they get combined here and therefore all the way forward from here, is that both reasons remain true. It's interesting with Rosh Hodesh, you know, uh, the measure of time, it's not seasonal, it's, it's monthly by the moon, but you know, a woman's menstrual cycle. You know, it's so interesting, I mean, it makes you wonder if the whole thing, the physiology of woman, and even, you know, uh, the birth process, you know, pregnancy, defined what humans thought of the month, what a month would be. I mean, it's interconnected, obviously, but... 100%. At least from the woman's perspective. 100%. How long is the cycle of the moon? 28 days. 28 days. 29, maybe, right? Absolutely closer to a woman's experience of a month than the solar calendar. So right? even though, and I, yeah. 31 has nothing. 30 or 31 means nothing to my body. But talk to me about 28. Well, once upon a time. Yeah. All right, so let's look at the next text, 11, verse 11. On, the, on your new moons, you shall present a burnt offering to Adonai, two bulls of the herd, one ram and one seven yearling limbs. Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about human sacrifice. That's a little slip there, Pam. Not seven limbs, but seven lambs. Those vowels are meaningful, even in English. I need my glasses. Without blemish. There we go. I, um, as it's okay. As meal offerings for each bowl, three tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in. As meal offering for each ram, two-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in. As meal offering for each lamb, 
a tenth of a measure of fine flour with oil mixed in. Such shall be the burnt offering of pleasing odor, an offering of fire God and I. Their libation shall be half a heen of wine for a bull, and a third of a heen for a ram, and a quarter of a heen for a lamb. That shall be the monthly burnt offering for each new moon of the year. And there shall be one goat as a purgation offering to Adonai, to be offered in addition to the regular burnt offering and its libation. Okay. So if we look at the calendar, the schedule of offerings, I have it right here. So if we look at the occasion, we have every day, then we have each Sabbath, then we have each new moon goes seven, one, two, one. Lambs, rams, bulls, and goats. It is the exact same as for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, and for Rosh Hashanah, and for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur has actually one less, as does Rosh Hashanah. That means that Rosh Chodesh had the same amount offered on it as major festivals. Clearly, the origins of this are deep, and it remains an important part of the Israelite experience. It has survived into today. This idea of Rosh Chodesh, this idea of a relationship to the moon, the phases and the cycles of the moon. We, of course, follow a lunar calendar in Jewish tradition. However, it is very complicatedly rectified, right, by putting leap months in in a 19-year cycle of craziness of calculations that I can't, you know, like math people love this, but I, I have no clue. I mean, it's amazing that the rabbis figured this out. I mean, you know, that from early times, for, from ancient Israel, like we could rectify the calendar. It's crazy the how they do this. The Greeks did too. They had the ancient device that they brought up from the sea from the, like the fourth century uh, BCE that had a, with gears and everything, to predict the eclipses, and it had a 223 month cycle which basically repeated because that's to some extent that is where the extra the extra month comes, comes in, in. And the whole cycle goes so like these amazing months. scientific minds like clearly they've existed for a long time um, who can think these ways um, but but so we have a very complicated way of rectifying the lunar calendar to be in relationship to the solar calendar so we really have a dual cycle right the sun is very important to making sure the grain grows Right? So it's not that we don't relate to the solar calendar. But we have focused a lot on the moon. The dating of our month is by the moon. Um, so this idea of the new moon means when there's no moon. Right, The dark of the moon is the birthing of the month. The moon has long been associated with the goddess, long been associated with women. Um, the whole 28-day business is very old and predates ancient Israel. The idea that, um, that there was a 28-day cycle that related to the moon and related to women's bodies is very old. There is a theory that I, that I actually like, um, that when you had the moon that was the goddess, when it was the full moon, it was her, fest it was her festival monthly, and then when the moon went away, right, it was, there was a rest 
time, there was a there was a rest of the heart that happened once a month in relationship to the goddess. One observed a rest of the heart. It was called in Akkadian Shabbatu. Shabbatu was the rest of the heart in honor of the goddess that was reflected in the cycle of the moon. Now, if you take the full moon, then you take the new moon, then you take the half moons, what do you have? You have a seven day cycle at the end of which is Shabbatu, a day of rest. So I am not convinced that it is an Israelite completely new innovation. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm of the preferred mind that there's some remnant for us as women in this idea of Shabbat being a quarter moon, uh, a quarter of our 28-day cycle, that it is actually rooted in the world and in nature and in us and, in, and that there's meaning for me in that 28-day divided by four. Um, for other people, it's more important that we invented it out of yesh ma'ayin, something from nothing, completely independent, you know, of, of anything uh, in creation. So we're going to look at the new moon. We're going to look at this idea of Rosh Chodesh. We talk about it a lot. Um, and so um, we, we're looking now at the origins, at least for um, what we have as the early Israelite expression of what needed to happen on that uh, on that month with that new moon, which was the bringing of the same amount of offerings that happened on other major festivals. We know um, that it happened most likely in the first temple, this idea of, you know, of recognizing the new moon. Uh, it was a time where people would be in ritual purity and clans would come together in a state of ritual purity and they would come to the local sanctuary and it was a day of rest, right? There was some observance of this as an actual holy time, a festival time set aside for resting and not working and dedicated to, um, to God in that way. Um, and the, uh, the book of Kings, in the book of Kings, there is a reference to the fact that one would have visited a man of God on this day, right? So clans would get together. They would do that in a state of ritual purity. They would observe a state of rest, and they would consult somebody who was kind of connected to the whole, right, religion business um, on that day. Uh, so, which is interesting. Like, it doesn't say that about other days, necessarily, right? That, but that, that this is Rosh Chodesh, that this is a regular a regular time. All right, so I'm going to give you something that we're going to look at together. When I give you this take, and I'm so sorry, I, I'm not great at working the copy machine. Take two pages. I did not staple them. I'm sorry. I'm just curious that it doesn't say a Kohen or a Levite, just a kind of spiritual guide. Is that right? Ish Elohim. You know, um, so. What we, is the word? Ish Elohim, a man of God, so we, we need to find, do more practical. about, hmm? It seems more practical once a month than once a week to see someone, because, I mean, life is busy. Right. So. Right. Life is busy. So once a week is too much, Dana, to come to shul? Is that what you're saying? Because life is busy? Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be an answer to 
how busy life is. Yes? I have a, a you don't have to answer this question. I was thinking about the mikvah in terms of the ritual. Yes. I mean, how often were they supposed to use the mikvah and was that to replace some of the stuff that they were doing? So women are to use the mikvah every month because after seven days of bleeding, there's seven days of not bleeding. And then after those second seven days, one goes to mikvah so that one returns to a state of ritual purity. So for women, I meant for men. Or so, um, so if they were eating, if they were coming together in a state of ritual purity, presumably mikvah would have been involved for any state of non-purity that one would have been in. Um, and there's now the practice of still among men, kiddush levana, the blessing of the moon. Um, when the moon is visible and out and present and all of that, that is different from the observance of Rosh Chodesh at the dark moon, right? At the, or the sliver, right? The bare sliver of the moon. Excuse me. And so that, that is kind of tied to men's observance of, of mikvah. Rabbi, mm -hmm. uh, there's some commentary here that I don't understand. I thought maybe we could clarify it here. Uh, it says that elaborate off offerings uh, indicate that Rosh Chodesh constitutes an important event. Well, okay, we got, got that. Then in parenthesis, it says, according to rabbinic tradition, it should have been annulled after the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, but the persistence of women preserved it. Now, can you elaborate on that? It should have been annulled in that there really isn't anything other than the sacrifices to make it an observance. So once the temple was destroyed, right, what, what would have been the observance of the new moon? It actually should have kind of gone away. Like, you don't have to do it anymore because there's no sacrifices. But women stayed really attached to the idea of the cycles and the phases of the moon and preserved, you know, that... That awareness and that celebration, if you want, you know, that observance of something around the new moon, and it really has stayed. Um, and so they're, they're crediting, I guess, you know, well, women's attachment and observance of it to goes on with one its preservation. It says, with the emergence of the women's movement in the 20th century, Rosh Chodesh has, become, has come to occupy a special place in women's rituals. Now, is that the case? That is exactly the case, which is why we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, with Rosh Chodesh, um, because that's exactly right. So, so right now, there are many um, women's groups, and groups, we have one at the synagogue that we participate in, groups of girls, teenage girls, um, that have Rosh Chodesh groups and meetings, and um, it's called Rosh Chodesh, it's a girl thing is one, one of those that's very popular. Um, and it's become incredibly meaningful for our girls to have a way to come together uh, in a Jewish context with a Jewish observance and a Jewish ritual that's rooted in very old Jewish practice that has been reconstructed. Um, so the feminist movement really reconstructed Rosh Chodesh. And I, I don't mean to say in any way that it's better than traditional Orthodox women's observance of Rosh Chodesh. It's been in, in Orthodox women's practice forever. Um, 
But progressive Jews have left a lot of the things, right, of regular observance that are in orthodoxy because of the feminist movement and increased awareness, it's come back into progressive Judaism as a reconstructed practice. Does that make sense? It's always been there for, for traditional women, um, which we're going to look at a little bit. Um, but but it, it, it went along and then like dropped for you know, progressive Jews and then has come back in through feminism. Um, all right, so can somebody give me, is there an extra of the, yeah. the readings? Here. I neglected to keep one. Thank you. Sorry. Um, so somebody want to read the third paragraph of Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson's piece, where it starts in Parshat Pinchas? Parashat Pinchas. The festivals of the calendar are detailed at length. Particular attention is given to the sacrifices offered on each day. What is noteworthy in that regard is that Rosh Chodesh gets the same number of offerings as the other major sacred occasions, a sure sign that it was of equal importance to those other holy times. To understand the context in which Rosh Chodesh was so important, it is worth, it is worth recalling the place of the moon in ancient pagan religions. For many of them, the moon represented powerful goddess whose worship often affected fertility and sustenance. In a world in which people worship nature as though it were divine uh, pantheism or in modern guise, transnaturalism. Ooh, little slam there <laughs> at Mordechai Kaplan. <laughs> but the moon was an attractive and frightening divinity. The genius of traditional Judaism was to fashion rather than fatly reject, flatly reject those powerful symbols making clear that divinity did not inhere in nature or in simple, simple being, but was a constant gift of the God who was and is the source of nature and of life. How the Torah and rabbinic Judaism made a place for the moon speaks a great deal for their gifted understanding of the human heart and their masterful ability as teachers and counselors. Rather than reject all religion in connection to the moon, the Torah does mark the new moon as a significant occasion, one in which the people of Israel gathered and praised the God who fashioned the sun, the moon, the stars, and other astral bodies. In short, rather than seeing the moon as a marvel in its own right, it, like all inanimate objects, is significant as a sign of God's steadfast love and creative bounty. In that regard, the Torah offers a fascinating hint calling for the offering of one goat as a sin offering to God. That expression occurs for no other festival else, uh, elsewhere in the entire Torah. Why does it have to be here? The answer is found in the Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed, which where uh, he writes that as it was apprehended that the he-goat offered in the, on the new moon could be imagined to be a sacrifice to the moon, it was explicitly stated that this goat was consecrated to God and not to the moon. In other words, what had been pagan ritual was now transformed to meet the purposes of ethical monotheism. 
the light of the moon now illuminated the riches of Torah and the sovereignty of the Rabbanu Shalom, the commander of space, time. The new phase of the moon became a time to praise God for the reliable cycles of nature. Thus, on the Shabbat prior to Rosh Chodesh, the synagogue resounds with the prayer that the new month shall be marked by the love of Torah and the fear of sin. On Rosh Chodesh itself, the congregation chants the Hallel, the ancient collection of praises to God offered by the Levites in King Solomon's temple. A few nights later, Jews gathered for the ritual of Kiddush Levana, a sanctification in response to the new moon. That ritual consists of reciting a psalm that firmly establishes God as the author of the natural order, noting that the sun, moon, and stars do God's will reliably, and implying that we should too. In reference to the Slavic custom, one Talmudic uh, rabbi claimed that one who blesses the new moon is regarded as one who greets the Shekhinah, the face of God. Blessings uh, the new moon is like seeing God's face because when Jews gather to bless the moon, we do so as an act of fidelity to the God who made the moon, who continues to pour supernal light on the world through the agency of renewing moon, the rising sun, and the glistening stars of the night sky. Surely that is a celebration worth renewing in our own troubled and doubting age. Some encouragement by Rabbi Artson too. Reclaim for ourselves this act of blessing the reliability of the natural order of time and of the seasons and of all those things. And for me, um, it's very powerful that we can go outside and look up in the sky at night and know where we are in time to know where we are in the cycle of our own observance. So I'm going to encourage you to start paying attention this summer to the moon. And once you see the new moon, you know from then until the next new moon where we are. Once you pay attention that it's dark, right, that there's just no moon or the first sliver of a moon, you know we're at the beginning of a new Hebrew month. And from that moment, every time you look in the sky, you know where we are. Because that full moon, you know we're at day 14. We're smack in the middle of the Hebrew month every time there's a full moon. And then as it starts to wane, right, you know we're on the way out of the, the middle point and towards the end. And then you start to see it go slimmer and slimmer and slimmer until it's gone and you know we're at a new moon. And from now, if you pay attention from now until uh, Elul, right, you, you will note the coming of Rosh Hashanah. And it's an incredible thing to pay attention to the end of our lunar year as we watch the cycles bring us to the new moon of, of Rosh Hashanah and of, of the new year. I don't know if it's my imagination, but sometimes some full moons look brighter that is a scientific astrological question for which I do not have the answer. Well, there recently was a super moon. Yeah, there's a super moon. 
Yeah. This whole period has been well, quite wonderful with um, our clear skies and the, and the new moon. Mm -hmm. um, but um, in the liturgy, for the Friday night, I mean, this whole discussion reminds me of that uh, reading and prayer, the Mari Barveen. Mm -hmm. Now, did that come from, um, the t did that uh, reading come from the uh, Torah? Or did it have a lot to do with this? Um, Hama'ari Baravim? Yeah. I think it had to do with the evening offering. So, Mari, <laughs> the service of Mari every day, comes to take the place of the evening offering in the temple. So, um, that's, that's its, its direct corollary, is the evening sacrifice. Um, having said that, I mean, I think we as human beings have always been attuned to the rhythms of the day and the rhythms of the month and the rhythms of the year. So for the rabbis, it was an opportunity for them, I think, to express some of those feelings about the end of the day, right? That I, I love the Ma'ariva Revim. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite pieces of liturgy. When we, we taught our adult Hebrew class, we just finished it recently. That's the text I taught to close that class. I, I really love that text. I think it's beautiful. We should look at it at some point. Um, but God who, who evenings the evenings, right? It's a verb. Evening is a verb um, for the rabbis. So who evenings the evenings, meaning it's also an expression of the creator. Um, and it's a time of some um, trepidation for us when it gets dark, right? And we're vulnerable and we're asleep. We're unconscious. Right? So, so the rabbis give us kind of this extra lovely prayer to say um, at night that, you know, it's about may we lie down in peace and rise up to life renewed. And it's a lovely, lovely piece. Amy, what adult class did you just teach here? Yeah, we taught an adult Hebrew class. Adult what? Hebrew. Oh. Mm -hmm. All right, so go to your net. I copied the wrong side of the page. <laughs> of Rabbi Green's book. So you have Rosh Hashanah instead of Rosh Chodesh. So you can hang on to that and uh, in a few months whip it out and you're ahead of the game. I'm telling you it is so time for vacation. Okay, so um, sorry about that. Um, look at this other one I gave you where it says prayer for the eve of the new moon. <laughs> Bless you. Right? There's so time for vacation. I'm just telling you. Voila. Or as they say in Hebrew, voila. Voila. So the RV, Marie, Marie, is like the rabbi's lullaby. It is. It is, and it's, it's exactly how I think of it. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful lullaby. Um, in a way, um, of God, you know, like for the world, you know, mm -hmm. there's a sense of, yeah, that's going to be okay, because there will be there will be a tomorrow. There will be a tomorrow, and you're and you will be sustained during sleep. You know, it's okay. Mommy's here. You know, Daddy's here. That that cosmic sense of protection. 
Yeah. So the Hashki, sorry, you're right. The Hashki Venu is the one may we lie down and rise up to life renewed. The Ma'ariva Ravim parallels the um, morning blessing. Parallels the uh, Ahavat Olam and you know all those the um, the light, that whole idea of light and celebrating the day. So so Ma'ariva Ravim is parallel to another piece of the liturgy in the morning. We get the ad the, the sense of trepidation is answered for the rabbis by the Hashki Venu. Oh. Um, so, that's the so it's. Uh, Maybe be sustained in this time of lying down. All right, so let's look at 234. This is a piece from a book called A Woman's Prayer Book, and it is a collection of what are called trinas. And trinas is the yid. How do you translate trinas? Where's Sarah when we need her? Is that a Yiddish word? Yeah. Trinas, they are prayers written by women um, of supplication. Um, okay, so um, so if you look down at the commentary, Ruben, it says, Sarah Bat Tovim was one of the most famous composers of Trinas in Yiddish. Right, so Trinas are Yiddish prayers written by women, used in the household, and there are collections of trinas that circulated um, in, and it's just this fantastic collection, and only people who could afford a copy could have them. Some of them were memorized, you know, so that you could offer them and you couldn't afford a prayer book, but people who could afford it would buy a collection of these trinas um, and offer them. And so it's one of the few repositories of Jewish women's, you know, writing and literature and expression that we have, um, and we have several of them. Rabbi Tikva, I mean, Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky, of blessed memory, my biblical year teacher, um, she did a collection of them. She did a, a translation and collection um, of them. This is from one called, um, I think it's called the, a Women's Prayer Book, which is a translation and collection of Trinas. Um, so I bring it to you. Uh, so on the back is the Hebrew, and this is Hebrew. I think. Yeah, because I understand it, <laughs> which means it's not Yiddish. So I don't know if this has been translated into Hebrew. I guess from the Yiddish. Yeah, from the Yiddish. Um, or if some of them are written you know, in Hebrew and would have been translated into Yiddish. In other words, that, that the, the language they would have been read by by women would have been in Yiddish. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? You know, and then translated, maybe it's written in Yiddish and translated into Hebrew. I, we, we have to study, I have to study more. What year are we talking about? So I, I don't know how early we have surviving Trinus from. I don't know. But um, but at least in the Ashkenazic you know world we have there there are hundreds of years hundreds and hundreds of years old. People people wrote in Yiddish they didn't write in Hebrew until. So Hebrew remained the lashon hakodesh. Hebrew mm -hmm. remained so the, the, rabbis... the the mode of communication about um, sacred matters. People wrote in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but the daily language of women would have been Yiddish. Yeah. Um, how much they could have composed in Hebrew, I don't know. And so 
so all the rabbinic scholars, Rashi, they all wrote in Hebrew. Correct. That is how Hebrew survived, right? Is it and continued to evolve? Is was in written form. Languages change much more quickly when they're spoken. Think of Shakespeare's English and our English. That is a very short span of time, and it is almost. It, I don't understand Shakespearean plays half of it, right? Because even though I, it's the same language, I, I can't understand half of what it means. So now think Beowulf. Forget it. It's closer to German than it is to English for me. So um, I understand none of it. You know. So um, so that's a very short period of time. Hebrew continued to evolve, but changed a lot more slowly because it was only in written form. But it remained in use in written form so that it continued to exist as an evolving language. So that when they decided to resurrect it, there was already a large body of, of literature. But yes, to, to understand Rashi and Rambam and all of that, you, you study it in Hebrew. In Aramaic. Hmm? A, lot, a lot of our literature is in Aramaic. Some of no, the, a lot of, of our literature is in uh, Aramaic. The only place you see Aramaic in the liturgy is when there's a stopping place in the service, because that would have been the vernacular of the rabbis. The liturgy is in Hebrew. And the Kaddish. And the Kaddish is in. When you see oh. Aramaic in the prayer book, in the liturgy, like in Kaddish, it is a stopping place in the service. It's like switching into English. So for the rabbis, that was their vernacular. So it meant we switched to the English side of the prayer book to read something together. Let us read the prayer for peace in English. It's a place where the liturgy stops and the congregation, like, wake up. They come back online because it's now in a language they understand. There's no Aramaic in the Torah at all? No. No. It is the language of Babylonia. It is the language of the exile. That is why the Talmud is written, the Babylonian Talmud is written in in Aramaic is because that was the language of the academy and when we were exiled all of the leadership was exposed to the idea of the academy it becomes now part of their practice to study our texts like they did in the Babylonian academy and that was all done in Aramaic so then all that's written out of that is written in Aramaic um, the rabbis wrote um, much of their I mean, even rabbinic Hebrew is reflective of Aramaic, and there are some words that go back and forth. So you are distinguishing liturgy is would be all Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And then the Haggadah is halachma or halachma anya, right? Is Aramaic. Um, so when we see Aramaic in the liturgy, it's like red flag, red flag. Pay attention. Something's happening. Something's different. Something's going on, right? So listen up. Um, all right, so somebody want to read the English of this prayer for the eve of the new moon? At the top here? Our Father. Yes, our Father. <laughs> our Father, merciful Father, show us your power and might. Help us and lead us to the chosen land as you promised us, for you are faithful and your words are faithful. But we ask of you, kind and merciful God, that you bring our redemption speedily that we may see it with our own eyes. Our Father, our God, when we sinned in the desert, Moses, our teacher of blessed memory, offered a prayer on our behalf. Our Father, our King, please give, forgive this nation in which you took pride and which you called. My firstborn son, Israel. 
I know that you are full of the attribute of mercy. Hear my voice as you heard the prayers of our earliest righteous forefathers when they cried out to you. Hear me this day, O searcher. So this is, this gives you a sense of the prayer at the new moon is for redemption, is for bring us back to the land, right? Bring us back to Israel. Let us see an end to our exile. Oh God who is faithful and brings the moon every month, right? Keep faith with us and let us see in our own time the, the time of return, the time of coming back and of being fully forgiven and being brought back to our land. And um, so interesting that this resides in the hearts of women who would have been saying this prayer in their home, right, for their family. They would ask forgiveness. Um, I'm going to read to you the English from Kohanishama, right, our prayer book, the prayer for the blessing of the new month. May it be your will, eternal one, our God, God of our ancestors, that you renew for us this month for goodness and for blessing. May you give us to long life, a life of peace, a life of goodness, a life of blessing, a life of nourishment and sustenance. May it be a life of bodily health, a life in which is found awe for the divine, a life in which we have a love of Torah and fear of heaven, a life free of disgrace and shame, a life of happiness and honor, a life of integrity and discernment, intelligence and knowledge, a life in which our heart's petitions are fulfilled for, fulfilled for goodness. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer. Then goes into, May the one who wrought miracles for our ancestors and redeemed them from, the servitude, from servitude to freedom continue to redeem us and speedily unite our dispersed kin from the four corners of the earth. This is the traditional prayer for the blessing of the new moon. You see the tchinas, the woman's take on it, that we just heard. So, so speedily unite our dispersed kin from the four corners of the earth. Let all Israel be committed to one another. Amen. The beginning of the month blank will fall upon blank. May it come to us and to all Israel for goodness. Let the blessed Holy One renew this month for us and for all who dwell on earth, for life and for peace, for joy and for happiness, for salvation and for rest. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Marsha Falk has a beautiful translation. Um, would you see if you can find her blessing for the new moon? Um, so, Or Chadash Ma'or Kadmon, new light from original light. What's Kadmon? Um, supernal light, like light, primordial light. New light, meaning the new moon, from primordial light. Or Chadash Ma'or Kadmon. Tina say, Nafshi Elecha, draw my soul up to you. Bishmei Chodesh, in the skies of, and then be fill in the month. Um, and that's where she ends, Linda Hirschhorn ends her musical setting of Marsha Fox blessing that I just told you, which she gets from a traditional source. So is it queued well, up and ready to go? Well, it's one of my favorites. We used to do it in Temple Israel in Duluth. Every Shabbos that was Rosh Chodesh, before Rosh Chodesh, we would sing. This is the right thing.